Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Annette Jusset-Gabriel. Today, I have the pleasure to talk with Caritha Mitchell about her new edition of Ayola Leroy. Caritha Mitchell is an associate professor of English at The Ohio State University. She specializes in African-American literature, racial violence throughout U.S. literature and contemporary culture, and Black drama and performance. Her study, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance, and Citizenship, 1890 to 1930, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2011, won book awards from the American Theater and Drama Society and from the Society for the Study of American Women Writers. She's currently revising her book manuscript, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Caritha, thank you for joining me to talk about this new book. Thank you. So I have to start off by saying um, you're at Ohio State University. I'm I'm here at University of Michigan, so I feel like I have to have a little disclaimer <laughs> about us having this conversation today. Um, but I'm, I'm very excited to talk about this book. So just to give listeners some context... I'm holding in my hands this book that is a lot of things. It is a critical edition of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper's 1892 novel, Iola Leroy, or Shadows Uplifted. And so the book begins with your introduction, Caritha, on the text and why it's important. And then there's a timeline of key moments in Harper's life. And then we have the novel itself, Iola Leroy, And then finally, appendices containing a series of documents from the 19th century about slavery and abolition. So like I said, this book is a lot of things. It is at once scholarly analysis, fiction, and archive. Caritha, can you tell us how you see these different parts of the text working together as a whole in what you describe as, and I'm quoting from the book here, the first cultural edition of Ayola Leroy? Absolutely, yes. Uh, the main thing I can say is that 
you know, I had used a Broadview edition several years ago to teach um, the House of Mirth. And I was really impressed with the way that these editions offer rich cultural context. And so because I've taught Iola Leroy pretty much every year of the 13 years that I've been a professor at Ohio State, I really felt like Iola Leroy would benefit from that kind of rich cultural context. So one of the things that's happened um, in those years that I've been teaching it is that scholars have rediscovered, in 1994 actually, um, Francis Smith Foster republished three of Harper's um, earlier novels. They were serialized in the Christian Recorder. So when that came out, it kind of, you know, blew everything. It it blew my mind, right, basically, that I had learned that Iola Leroy was the only novel that Watkins Harper had published. And now here this was expanding um, my understanding of what she had accomplished. So one of the things that struck me is that I was using an introduction that was constantly calling Iola Leroy the first and only of her novels. And I wanted to be able to acknowledge that this is in a much richer context than that. Then just uh, a couple years before I decided to do this edition, a graduate student found um, Watkins Harper's very first publication called Forest Leaves. So as you say, I begin with an introduction where I'm really trying to give readers a sense of the context that they need to have in mind when they read Iola Leroy. And I wanted those to be a very important part of how we were understanding it. But you're also right that, you know, part of what happens when we reprint the novel itself is that I was able to do really thorough footnotes of the novel. So that way, some of the questions that my students would have about a reference to a Civil War battle or that kind of thing, I actually was able to do footnotes to answer those questions Mm -hmm. on the spot. But you're also right that the appendices um, are really important to the work that I've done here. And I have to say that Having the freedom to put together these appendices really was the reason I wanted to do this from the from the start. And I'll just use as an example, Appendix C, Black Families and Slavery and Freedom. One of the things that I always stress to my students is how important it clearly was to Watkins Harper to highlight Black families and their love for each other. And I wanted this edition to demonstrate that that was not somehow accidental, that that was actually crucial to the work that she was doing. And so being able to do an appendix on Black families and slavery and freedom is really what made me want to do this edition. So for example, not only do I have letters um, where people are writing to each other during slavery, Um, Let's say that they were able to dictate um, a portion of their so-called master's letters to each other, right? So a husband and wife who were separated, um, one was with the master, one was with the mistress. And as the 
owners wrote to each other, they allowed their enslaved um, couple to dictate part of the letter. So I have examples of those kinds of letters, but I also have um, the ads that people took out in newspapers throughout the country trying to find each other after slavery was over. Um, And in one situation, a brother is looking for his sister and they haven't seen each other for 35 years. So I have to admit to you that doing that kind of work, providing that kind of documentation so that it's right at the fingertips of readers is why I wanted to do this edition in the first place to highlight those marginalized voices. Mm. So I'm I'm hearing kind of two strands in your response. Um, One has to do with discovery and the other has to do with sort of expansion of knowledge. And, and that was very much the experience that I had as I was reading this book, right? Like on one hand, I'm, I discover things about, about Harper. Um, and on the other hand, I also sort of, I, I see a lot of your work building on and expanding, um, you know, kind of using the most recent research to expand what we already know about Harper. Um, so again, just for the benefit of our listeners, um, you know, just just who Harper was, right? So she she was a writer, a public speaker, a feminist activist, and an abolitionist. And so with all of those titles, right, the historical record allows us to know who she was on paper. But Karita, your biographical overview also allows us to get a glimpse of who she was as a person. And I found that really fascinating. So for example, you offer a brief anecdote about a conversation that Watkins Harper had with a slave dealer while she was traveling alone (laughs) through the South. And this sounds to me like a terrifying experience. And, 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 And she says, and this is what is really striking to me, right? The quote that you have here is she says, it is not worthwhile to show any signs of fear. And so, you know, reading your biographical overview, we know that she had read Solomon Northrop's 12 Years a Slave when it appeared about a decade earlier, and that she was fully aware of the dangers of mobility yes. for free Black people. <laughs> so, I mean, just given this, this, this fascinating and somewhat terrifying anecdote, my, my question is, who was Frances Watkins Harper? Who was this woman who made such bold choices? Oh, my God, what a powerful question. I mean, in so many ways, working on this, um, for me, underscored how much she really exemplifies what we should be following as a model today, right? So as I think about um, Black Lives Matter and the U2, uh, I'm sorry, the Me Too movement, I'm thinking about the ways that so often um, people of color and activism around the rights of people of color so often kind of revolves around the violence against Black and brown men and that the Mm -hmm. violence against white women is what mobilizes people when it comes to sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, right? So even though uh, Tarana Burke, a Black woman, started hashtag Me Too, it really seemed to gain traction only when the victims who were being highlighted were white women. So to my mind, Harper represents what it means to recognize how often women of color are erased in our movements for greater justice for all people, Um, to recognize that we're erased, but to keep doing that coalition building regardless. So she is someone who worked very, uh, very deliberately with white women, despite 
facing their racism constantly. This comes through in terms of, you know, her work on temperance with the women's Christian temperance movement. She has plenty of writing about the many ways that they prove to be racist, uh, the way that, uh, Northern white women would capitulate to Southern white women's preference not to interact with black women, for example. But Harper still said, not only am I going to work with this organization, but I'm going to encourage other African-Americans, men and women to work with this organization. Um, She also encounters black men who, you know, sometimes diminish the work that she's doing, uh, underestimating the importance of black club women for their work, for example. And so I just see her as someone who, despite those barriers and despite calling out those barriers, continued to do the work that she saw as important regardless. And so to me, she ends up being a model for what we should all be trying to do, um, regardless of our background. Um, The other thing that your question makes me think about is she was incredibly successful, like even Iola Leroy, it was reprinted four times in four years when she published it at age 67. Okay. And this is after decades of a career in which she was a sought after speaker throughout the 1850s and 60s, 70s, 80s, right? It's nine, eight, it's 1892 by the time she publishes Iola Leroy and she's 67 after having all of these decades of a really successful, um, successful career. And yet we know so little about her. So in some ways, Mm -hmm. I feel like she also represents the way that we have to keep doing our work, regardless of whether we are getting the accolades or attention or simply the support that would allow Mm -hmm. us to feel invigorated to continue to do that work. Like she continues to do it regardless of how much support she is or is not getting. And one of the ways this came through for me is, um, and I try to represent this in the introduction, the fact that she, you know, loses her voice, is battling ill health and still continues to do this kind of grueling traveling and speaking schedule. Um, And so one of the things that I think I also came to appreciate is how her Christian faith um, inspired her to be tireless in her labor, despite those, not only those encounters like you described (laughs) with the Mm slaveholder, but also in the face of her own um, sometimes challenging health. So one of the things this project made me do is realize how secular I've become in my outlook, that I haven't been necessarily thinking about the role that faith can play for some of the people that I've been studying. And this project made me um, kind of think about the power uh, of that for someone who was enduring the 19th century. Wow. So I'm really struck by the connection that you you just made um, in your response between, I guess, the context in which um, Harper is working and our contemporary context, right? And, and the ways that Black women get erased or fall out of these narratives um, that are particularly around different forms of activism for, for equality and for yeah. justice. Um, 
And so I'm wondering how that translates into the 19th century context at the time that um, that Harper was working. So, you know, like you said, Ayola Leroy is first published as a standalone text in 1892. And one of the things that your timeline really helped me to see was what that what that historical moment looked like. So that's the same year that Ida B. Wells publishes Southern Horrors and um, Anna Julia Cooper publishes A Voice from the South. Can you paint a picture for us of that historical context? What is the America in which the novel Iola Leroy first appears? Oh, wow. And that's such a complicated question, too, because uh, on the one hand, there is the historical moment in which it appears. And then on the other hand, it's the historical moment that it insists upon tracing, which, of course, is Mm -hmm. antebellum on through Reconstruction. But in terms of when it appears, I think I think you're right to point out that um, she's writing alongside Ida B. Wells and Anna Julia Cooper. I find that to be a really important uh, fact as well. And I think that my introduction to Iola Leroy was very attentive to that, right? Partly because um, these are all people who were able to speak at the um, Chicago exhibition that everyone always talks about, Um the World's Exhibition, the Colombian World's Exhibition. I'm sure I'm getting the name wrong. I always mess it up. Um, but so Harper is one of the people who um, is a Black woman who was invited to speak at that exhibition. So to me, 1892 for that reason and 1893 represent this, um, what she calls woman's era, right? And of course, you know, Harper uses that term woman's era in her speech at the 1893 exhibition, and it continues to be taken up by Black club women. Um, There's a Boston uh, literary magazine or um, newsletter for the Black club women in Boston that they call the woman's era, which of course has shaped a lot of the scholarship that we've been doing. So it just seems to me that because the 1890s end up being a height of racist violence against African-American communities, that's the reason why this becomes such an important moment for Black women to claim it as their moment, because they're having to do this work while watching the fact that Black men are and women too, but black men are often lynched, not because they're criminals, not because they're rapists, but because they're successful in some way. So part of what club women have to face is the way that their investment in making black households as stable as they can make them, right? Because club women are doing mother's meetings, teaching less educated black women how to, you know, raise their families and keep house and all of that. So much black Um, club women's work is about creating solid black homes, but they're doing it at a moment when they know that being successful at creating such homes is exactly what makes you vulnerable to racist Mm -hmm. violence. And so I think Mm -hmm. that one of the reasons why we see this intersection is because they understand to a degree that maybe we've forgotten how much lynching and rape go together that lynching black men and claiming that they are rapists is also being bolstered by the insistence that black women are natural whores and that raping them is an impossibility. So as black club women are doing this work to create 
solid homes, they're doing it in that environment. And so they understand that they understand better than most that the work that they're doing is under siege, that Mm -hmm. making Black women vulnerable to rape is just part and parcel of the way that you keep Black communities terrorized. So to my mind, part of what's so powerful about Iola Lee Roy and it emerging in 1892 is that Iola is a character who can pass for white, but refuses to do so once she knows that she that her mother has African blood because she insists upon finding her mother after they've been remanded to slavery because you know, her father dies and therefore his, um, you know, brother is able to claim Iola, her mother and her brother as property. But what's key about all of this, to my mind, is that Iola is literally trying to escape rape from the moment that she finds out that she has black blood. And so Harper highlights the way that racist violence is gendered. It's lynching on one hand, it's rape on the other hand. So for me, that's one of the ways we can understand the historical moment that this novel emerges. Mm -hmm. But, you know, of course, the other way that I think about Harper bringing us this text in the 1890s is I think about it in the literary landscape. So part of the argument I make in the introduction is I think that part of what she's doing is merging um, the interests of readers, white women readers in particular, who are invested in sentimental romance, but then also um, calling on the fact that um, slave narratives had been bestsellers. So it's like, okay, stories that focus on Black characters may actually um, have some traction given that we have this history of slave narratives being bestsellers in the antebellum era. But she's doing it at a moment when the bestsellers are things like Mark Twain's um, Huckleberry Finn, right? And um, the Uncle Remus uh, story. So it seems to me that part of what she's doing is addressing the fact that white men um, are making bestsellers of these plantation fiction um, texts that see slavery as a better time. And I feel like what she's doing is giving us a more accurate picture of black families and communities um, than what we would get in those plantation fiction examples. So your your um, discussion of genre, I think, is something I want us to explore a little bit further, um, because, you know, you, you just described Ayola Leroy as as sentimental romance and also as, um, you know, slave narrative and plantation fiction. Right. So these are the three genres that that Harper is kind of working with. Um, and so I, I always kind of make it a point to ask people that I interview about genre. But that question gets so much more complex in this conversation <laughs> so, because it sounds like Harper is speaking to or envisions three different kinds of audiences, the three different groups of people who read each of these three genres. I I wonder whether you think that she was in some way trying to bring these target audiences together by merging these three genres in this way. Absolutely. I mean, to my mind, part of what she illustrates is the way that 
you know, it's like black women are the last demographic that people are thinking about, that people are writing toward. But when black women become Mm -hmm. artists, they are absolutely looking to, um, you know, gain the attention and engage um, every sector of the population. And for Watkins Harper, this is especially important because her work is about trying to make this country live up to its claims about, um, you know, equal opportunity and that kind of thing, right? I mean, when you're writing in a postbellum moment after Reconstruction, you're certainly writing in a moment where... um, supposedly the United States is about equal opportunity. And so because she wants the country to actually live up to that, I think is the reason why she's so invested in doing everything in her power to address all of those audiences. So I I don't want to, you know, give away any spoilers, but I want us to talk about the novel itself, Ayola Leroy. Um, Particularly what equal opportunity looks like, you know, as you're saying, in this historical moment for a black woman. What are what are her choices? What are the paths open to her? Um, you know, and so you gave us a, a, a synopsis of the novel in your earlier response, um, you know, about the titular character who's a woman with, you know, who, with light skin or white skin and blue eyes and who passes as white until her white father dies. Um you know, and then she finds out that her mother, you know, like you said, had been enslaved and owned by her father. And so at this kind of pivotal point, she has two choices. She can either continue passing through marriage to a white man, or she can search for and be reunited with her mother and therefore live as a black woman. Um, and she does kind of ultimately make a choice. And, and I, I really encourage readers to read the book and get a sense of, of where that choice leads. But I want us to consider the gendered dimensions of these two choices open to the character. So to pass as white requires allegiance to a white man as father or husband. And to be Black is to rediscover the Black mother. How does this novel work through the deep imbrication of race and gender that we find both in its plot and, like you just said, in the larger society on which the novel is reflecting? Oh my God, that's so good. I don't know that I can match the brilliance of that question with my answer, but I'll try. Um, you know, part of what's powerful to me is that, yes, she's writing in this genre of sentimental romance, which of course she knows Mm -hmm. she can rely on white middle-class, um, you know, fairly educated women to read and to, uh, be familiar with the conventions of that genre. And so of course they are attentive to when you have a protagonist like Iola, who is not only beautiful with her blonde hair and blue eyes, but is also incredibly virtuous and, um, at least admirable, right? Um, Hardworking, Mm -hmm. admirable, caring. She is a a nurse in the 
the camp of the Union Army and we get to see how right feeling she is, right? In the parlance of sentimental romance, she's a woman who knows how to feel right, how to have empathy and sympathy for those who are suffering. And so when you have a character like that, naturally she's supposed to, um, you know, take steps toward having everything that she's supposed to have, which is happiness and stability and all of that. And as you say, for her, this comes in the form of several marriage proposals. So she's first proposed to by one of her co-workers in the Civil War camp, um, Dr. Gresham, who uh, proposes to her. And he's, you know, admirable and all of those things, too. But because she's determined to find her mother, she knows that she can't, you know, basically, as she, I think, puts it, bury herself in a white household being absorbed into his family. Mm-hmm. She has to keep her search for her mother. Um, so, yeah, you're right. This idea of, you know, linking to the mother becomes a powerful um, way that Watkins Harper has us thinking about the way that slavery was constructed on this idea that um, you follow the the path of the mother. And so what Harper does is highlight what does that mean for someone who doesn't look like they have to follow the path of the mother. Um, The other part of what your question makes me think about is the way that even though Watkins Harper is using the sentimental romance plot that we think should revolve around marriage, she actually makes a really big um, issue of Iola's determination to find meaningful work. So first, after the Civil War is over, she starts teaching. We have several chapters in which we get to see what her role as a teacher is, um, Yeah, I won't give that away, but we'll get to see her role as a teacher. Um, The the school that she's teaching in is burned down. So this is another moment where we get to see something that I highlight in the appendices, which is that, you know, even after emancipation, there are lots of ways that you keep black people in their so-called proper place with violence against them using their freedom to do things like gain the education that they've been deprived of during slavery. So that school is burned down. Um, And then we see her continuing not only to find her mother, but also continuing to find meaningful work. She uh, works in shops and, you know, is able to do that until co-workers connect her to blackness and then they refuse to work with her. And Watkins Harper has us watch her go through, I think it's four different positions. And the last of which I think she actually travels and moves to live by herself in order to find that job. So she is on a quest not only for her mother, but also for meaningful work. And in that last scenario, she's able to find a boss who challenges the other employees and says, well, if you refuse to work with her because she has black blood, then you can leave this job. So Harper kind of shows us this path, but then she has problems living <laughs> uh, so that she, mm-hmm. if the job discrimination is defeated, then the housing discrimination steps in to keep this you know, non-white, supposedly non-white person in her proper place. So that's the other way that I think we can appreciate what Watkins Harper is doing with the sentimental romance is that she's revising it too by having such an emphasis on, um, you know, finding meaningful work. Wow. It's it's really fascinating how 
those two things come together. So the, 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 the search for the mother and the search for meaningful work come together as a sort of repudiation of the economy of slavery, right? Uh, the, the gendered um, economy of slavery. So we, we, we started this conversation with you painting a picture of the America in which Ayola Leroy first appeared. Um, and we've kind of been building on that picture progressively as, as we've been talking. And I think that our listeners in general have a fairly good idea of contemporary America. And so the America in which your edition of the novel appears. Why do you think this book, this edition is important, not just as a work of recovery of Harper's writing, but also for the light that it can shed on race in the United States today? Oh, wow. Thank you so much. One way that I can answer that um, is to gesture again toward the appendices. Mm -hmm. Um, There are two other moves that I make there that I think are important. One is in the first appendix, which I called Slavery, Civil War and Emancipation, Reconstruction and Its Demise. One of the things that I was really careful to do is highlight the confiscation acts. And so part of the reason I think that's important in our current historical moment is that it's an example of how I really want readers and teachers to stop doing what has, I believe, enabled this latest resurgence of white supremacy to happen, right? It seems to me that one of the reasons why white supremacy is having such a strong comeback is that we've so consistently failed to mark white supremacy white privilege, and also white mediocrity. We've refused to mark the way that whiteness comes with unearned advantage. It's as if we can talk about the disadvantages of black and brown people, but don't you Mm -hmm. dare mention that those disadvantages are carved out of unearned advantage Mm -hmm. for white people. So one way that I feel like that manifests in our teaching is that we constantly teach our classes as if, you know, racism is just proving to be durable. I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, you know, there were nothing but good white people in the North who were willing to end slavery. So it's just surprising that it endured as much as it did. Like, that's the way that we teach. But an example like the Confiscation Acts allows us to recognize that even during the Civil War, when you are um, fighting supposedly against slavery, there's still a way in which you can see Black people as primarily property. And the Confiscation Acts illustrate that for us very, very clearly, that the very first move is, yes, you can treat these um, Black people who escape to union lines as contraband of war that you can use to win the battle that you're fighting. But that does not mean that you see them as people, and that does not mean that you see them as inevitably citizens. Mm-hmm. It's only after that second confiscation act that I that I reproduce in that appendix that the possibility of citizenship even emerges, right? So that's one way for us to understand that it is not an accident um, that the hierarchies of race that we still 
encounter um, that they endured, that even in that moment, they were solidified every step of the way, just as they're being solidified now. Maybe another way for us to think about this is I feel like so often teachers, and I'm talking K through 12, as well as um, in higher education, that so often we teach U.S. history as if, you know, there are just so many progressive white people and I just don't know how it is that we've continued to have this racism going on, right? So, for example, Abraham Lincoln, we're all taught to think of him as the great emancipator and all of that. And so part of what I've done is to give us his address on colonization, right, in that second appendix, because it's too easy for us to paint this picture of him as always progressive and so many um, white people as always aggressive progressive. But the truth is, this is the United States. It's been, you know, built on racism. And even someone that you've been taught is the great emancipator is someone who thought, you know, it would be much, much better if, if these Black people insist upon being free, they really ought to allow themselves to be shipped outside of the United States. I mean, that's the reasonable thing to do. So when you ask why I think this is important for our current historical moment, I think that moments like that and documents like that help us to understand how we got here. When we teach our history as if it's been nothing but progressive white people who have always been trying to give a handout to black and brown people. We're telling a very serious lie. And so I'm providing you with the documents to tell a much more honest story, because if we equip our students and ourselves with a better truth, then maybe we can figure out how we can do better in our current historical moment. And to my mind, we can't do better if we're not naming the unearned privilege of whiteness. Mm. Telling an honest story. That is, I mean, there, there, there's so much in what you're saying that resonates, I think, not just across time, right? So the sort of enduring nature of, 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 of racism, but also across space. And so I'm thinking about, you know, how everything that you described about Black soldiers in the Civil War as still being seen as property, as having their citizenship completely denied and their humanity completely denied, how much that resonates with what I see in my own work um, with, with French colonial soldiers in, in the world wars, for example, right? That you continue to be seen as cannon fodder and not ever as a person and certainly not as a citizen. And yes. so with, with, with that thread, I am really fascinated by the title of the book manuscript that you are working on now, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Can you tell us a little bit about the honest story that you are looking to tell in this book and how citizenship, um, you know, comes into play in this in this book? Oh, wow. I wasn't expecting that. OK, <laughs> well, just just um, a brief, a brief teaser. That's a, a pretty selfish question because I'm just really interested and I, I want to hear a little bit about it. But just a, a brief teaser, I think, would be would be great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I'm interested in doing in that text is basically um, offering what I think of as a model for responsible reading practices. And what I mean by that is 
what would happen if we read Black authored texts through the lens of success rather than protest, which is what we typically do, right? So very often what happens is we assume that especially if a text is engaging with violence, that it's responding to white authored violence. And what I want to do in this project is say, you know what? And, and, you know, this is a lesson I learned from writing my first book, Living with Lynching, right? That those lynch victims were not targeted because they were criminals. They were targeted because they were successful in somehow in, in some way, right? They had land white people wanted to take. They had the audacity to try to protect their wives from sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, they had the nerve to demand a decent price for their crop, a decent price price for their labor, right? So those were the the Black people who needed to be put back in their proper place, and their deaths would terrorize the rest of the community to know that they should stay in their proper place. So part of what writing Living with Lynching taught me is that it was Black success that beckoned the mob. So if that's the case, then why don't we read African-American literature with an eye toward achievement And if we do that, part of what we'll notice is that Black people are staying focused on pursuing success. When they do that, white-authored violence answers their success to put them back in their proper place. Now, a text that's going to accurately reflect the community will acknowledge that that violence came to check their success, but it doesn't mean that that text is a response to the violence. It's simply recording the way that Black people stay focused on success, and while they're doing that, white author violence comes to respond to them. So what From Slave Cabins to the White House tries to do is to read African-American cultural production through the lens of success, watch how faithfully white violence answers that success, and then continue to keep our eye on the ball by watching how Black people continue to pursue success, even while they know that they're doing so will continue to invite violence. So homemade citizenship is my term for practices of making oneself at home, right? So for me, practices of making oneself at home um, basically means that you're making yourself at home in an environment that wants to remind you that you are never at home here, right? So it's a very United States-based study because I'm interested in what does it mean to watch how people who stayed sort of in the lion's mouth um, were not interested in thinking about, um, you know, leaving the country and finding better opportunity elsewhere, but determined to stay here and make a home in this hostile environment. What does it look like to acknowledge their practices of making oneself at home in the midst of that hostility. Reading Black narratives and Black cultural production through the lens of success and making oneself at home. I, I cannot wait to read <laughs> this book. And I guess I could be more concrete by saying that the study begins um, with incidents in the life of a slave girl, oh, okay. um, 1861, 
and putting that in conversation with the 1868 narrative, Elizabeth Keckley's um, Behind the Scenes, or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. So in that first chapter, you're going from slave cabins to the White House, um, with Keckley having been the, the seamstress for um, Abraham Lincoln's Mm-hmm. wife. So that's the first chapter, which is, you know, solidly in the antebellum period um, or in the slavery era. Um, and then I look at Iola Leroy and contending forces. Um, then I skip ahead to the 20s and 30s with um, Their Eyes Watching God and Quicksand. Um, and then the 50s and 60s with two plays, um, A Raisin in the Sun and uh, Alice Childress's Wine in the Wilderness. Uh, Then I look uh, for the 70s and 80s, I look at Kindred by Octavia Butler and Beloved by Toni Morrison. Uh, And then I end by looking at Michelle Obama's public persona as a performance text um, and looking at the way that her casting herself as mom in chief and the decisions that she makes about hair, clothes and bodily presentation. All of those decisions say a lot about the United States, right? Say a lot about how racist and sexist the United States has always been, um, right? Because, for example, if you have to call yourself mom and chief to justify your public health mm-hmm. <laughs> initiative, that mm-hmm. says a lot when you were just in, you know, an administrator at the University of Chicago Medical Center. But that can't be the basis of your expertise. You've got to be right. mom and chief. So that says a lot about the racism and sexism of the United States. Um, And then the coda is the one thing that I'm still um, working through. But I think the the title for that will be From Mom in Chief to Predator in Chief. And talk about how if we really understand, you know, the violence uh, against Black success, then we won't be so surprised that we had lots of Americans who were just determined to move from mom in chief to predator in chief. Wow. I can already think of like five questions I have about this book. So I hope that you will consider coming back to talk to us uh, once the book is out. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you, especially as I'm still working on it. I can take that encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, I have been talking with Caritha Mitchell about her new edition of Frances Watkins Harper's 19th century novel, Ayola Leroy. Caritha, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. 